This is Macro Horizons, episode 81. Blindside is 2020, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 10th. And as we ponder the balance of the year, we cannot help but think, what goes wrong next? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a great deal of new information to digest, but the net takeaway was remarkably little price action. It was interesting to see such a strong non-farm payrolls report result in, on net, a slight drift lower in Treasury yields. In addition, we did see strong ISM manufacturing and non-manufacturing data, combined with a higher-than-expected 10- and 30-year auction announcement. Now, the upside surprise on the refunding did have an incremental influence via slightly higher rates on Wednesday in the wake of the announcement, but that price action was not ultimately sustainable. What we're seeing is, as a theme, a very defined range trade that has characterized the bulk of the year, particularly in the 10- and 30-year sector to some extent. While this week did see fresh lows for 10s, i.e. the lowest since a March rally, what was most surprising was the gains were incremental. We didn't break the 50 basis point mark in 10-year yields, which remains an important line in the sand and will be a technically significant break if and when it does occur. That's certainly a level that will remain on the radar in the near future. As has been the case for the bulk of the last several months, the real defining characteristic of financial markets at the moment has been the steady gain in domestic equities. That trend persisted throughout the bulk of the week, and we expect will continue to be a focal point as the summer plays out. Given the proximities to the record high for the S&P 500, it's certainly well within the realm of conceivable outcomes to see a fresh new high established before Labor Day. And with the series of upcoming data events, not least of which being the July retail sales report, continued upside in the stock market will remain very topical. And with the backdrop of the ongoing rise in COVID-19 cases, The influence of the pandemic is by no means behind financial markets. As a result, we expect investors will continue to track the COVID-19 case counts, although the statistics have become less immediately tradable than they had in the middle of July. At this point, the market is looking to drive the broader trends and, of course, to get a better gauge of whether or not the rise in case counts will translate through to more downside risk for the labor market in August and September. So 1.8 million jobs added in July, 13 million to go, and then we're back to pre-pandemic levels. Exactly. If we look at the price action in the treasury market, 
One could argue that that nuance might have been lost on investors. We saw very little price action as a result. Now, 10-year yields are still at 54 basis points, and that's consistent with a Fed that's going to be on hold for a very long time and a domestic economy that's going to continue to struggle to regain those missing 13 million jobs as we transition into whatever the new normal will be. Coming into the event, we did make the observation, and I believe it still holds, that the market would be quicker to dismiss a stronger-than-expected number as old information than it would be to actively reprice on weaker data. And the logic there is simply that the recent increase in COVID-19 cases has occurred in such a way that expectations are that it will hit the August and September data rather than the July series. Keeping in mind that non-farm payroll survey week is the week that includes the 12th of a given month. And that dynamic won't necessarily go anywhere. I mean, sure, there is rising optimism around the chances of a vaccine sooner rather than later. But as we've seen in the U.S., the virus has made its way to different regions at different times. And this introduces the risk of the next wave, again, introducing uncertainty around employment figures, as the notion that the quote-unquote latest lockdowns aren't incorporated in the data could continue to roll forward for some time. Let us not forget that this week we also saw the refunding announcement. There were expectations centered around the notion that if the Treasury Department increased the size of the 10 and 30-year auctions more than anticipated, that we would see a re-steepening impulse as a result. Now, clearly, that did not come to fruition. And in fact, I was somewhat surprised how quickly Treasury investors were willing to dismiss the increase in auction sizes. Ben, do you have any thoughts on the prospects for the August refunding in this type of an environment? Yeah, now that NFP is behind us, it will be another important week in the primary market for treasuries next week. I would actually argue the larger than expected increases did add a bit of a bear steepening tone on Wednesday, but the fact that treasuries were already in the process of selling off going into the actual announcement bolsters the argument that supply is not as consequential in setting the outright level of yields as growth and inflation expectations, which is just a complicated way of saying the path of the virus. And it was encouraging to see the Treasury Department specifically cite the strong auction performance we've seen recently as the motivations behind their comfort to increase supply larger than expected. For example, consensus on the 20-year was a $2 billion increase to both the refunding and the reopening auctions. So at a $5 billion upsizing, that's a pretty meaningful surprise. Nonetheless, I wouldn't be shocked to see a bit of a bearish drift early in the week ahead to set up for once again record large auctions. But generally speaking, the events should come and go and leave 10 and 30 year yields ballpark where they've been for the past several weeks. Ian, what do you make of the idea that the Treasury, by aggressively terming out its issuance, is going to force the FOMC's hand in adjusting the composition of their QE purchases to be disproportionately targeted towards longer tenors versus now, which is evenly balanced across the curve? I think it's an interesting concept, but I don't think that that's the dynamic that's playing out at this point. It seems more an issue of the Treasury Department simply taking advantage of the realities of the shape of the curve instead of ultimately trying to influence monetary policy in such a roundabout manner. And let's face it, the Treasury Department has plenty on their plate to worry about other than trying to do Powell's job. For example, the ongoing decline of the U.S. dollar certainly has raised a lot of eyebrows across a variety of different financial markets. And as we're increasingly hearing, this raises questions about the dollar status as the world's reserve currency. 
Now, a crucial facet of that discussion is, well, if it's not the dollar, what could possibly replace it? The euro comes to mind, maybe the RMB as well. But given the issues facing both the eurozone and liquidity concerns around the Chinese yuan, to me anyway, it's still very unlikely that we see such a dramatic shift in the underlying fundamentals of the global financial system at any point in the near term. Sure, the geopolitical system globally is in flux at the moment, and this is a theme I don't anticipate going away anytime soon, but it is something to ponder over the coming quarters and years, frankly. I do tend to agree. The one observation that I would add is that the depreciation of the dollar is also very consistent with the massive amount of monetary policy accommodation that's being pushed through the system. And we can see that play out in the record high gold prices with gold breaking through $2,000 an ounce. That is an incredible move, certainly toppling prior records and really recasting market expectations for the performance of real assets over financial assets even with the backdrop of the domestic equity market continuing to grind higher, even in the face of another round of COVID-19 case increases. And in my mind, that's at least partially related to the prospects we've seen for the next round of fiscal stimulus. Later in this past week, there were headlines suggesting that the negotiations were not exactly going great. But the fact that that did not immediately erase all the upside we've seen in equities is supportive to the narrative that something will need to really materially change in order to prompt a sharp repricing lower in risk assets. One of the most interesting takeaways from our pre-NFP survey was the split nature on the outlook of stocks going forward. 46% saw a revisit to 3,000 before we reached 3,600 in the S&P 500, while 54% saw 3,600 before getting back to 3,000. So really, the fact that that breakdown was so close to 50-50, I do think speaks to some uncertainty about the direction of sentiment and thus stocks over the next several months. And one of the potential risks to sentiment at the moment certainly has to be the fiscal support that is providing very generous unemployment benefits to that subset of the labor market that is currently unemployed. This then interacts back with the fiscal stimulus prospects. And to be honest, it's very difficult to disentangle how much of the political rhetoric and back and forth is just posturing in order to try to negotiate a better deal, and how much is an indication that a stimulus package might actually not go through. I think the market's base case is for some form of fiscal stimulus to go through. It's entirely possible that's augmented by executive orders from the president. But since that's a base case, if either that process is significantly delayed or does not occur, that could lead to some volatility in sentiment, a push lower in risk assets, and an attempt at 50 basis points in tens in treasuries. Another political theme we saw in this past week was maybe not the return of the trade war, but a resumption of trade tensions. Canada joined China on the White House list of targets, but nonetheless, it is a reminder that pandemic aside, the trade war remains. And regardless of who takes the White House in November, Given what we've heard from the Biden campaign, it's no guarantee that a change of party at the executive branch will usher in any sweeping rollbacks of the import taxes or even a ratcheting down of the tensions between Washington and Beijing. I am skeptical that we would see a sharp acceleration in the trade war, however. And a lot of that is basically the thesis that the reason the Trump administration felt comfortable being so aggressive back in 2018, 2019 
was the strength of the underlying economy. Unemployment was at multi-decade lows. We are nowhere close to that world currently, which means that the U.S. would be negotiating both from a point of weakness and vulnerability. In essence, either the Trump or Biden administration can't push as hard or do as many growth negative things in terms of the negotiations as they otherwise would have were the unemployment in the threes or fours. Well, it, it certainly does put the emphasis back on the November election and the process which will surround that. It has been a logical result of the timing of the pandemic that the market really hasn't traded or focused on the upcoming election that much. That will, however, change over the course of the next few months, if not weeks. We are getting to some pivotal points in the campaign process. And as Biden chooses a VP candidate, We'd expect that would kickstart the campaigning process, at least on the margin as the summer continues to play out and investors deal with the reality of an economy that is still largely on hold as reopenings and re-engagements continue to be looming rather than realized. And in thinking about the election and the balance of August trading conditions, it's not unreasonable to anticipate that as the date itself approaches, the market will begin to price to what is reflected in the polls. Now, given what we saw in 2016 via Brexit in the presidential election, there's naturally going to be less conviction behind the polling numbers. But nonetheless, as a background factor, we can expect the election figures to grow in relevance in terms of dictating price action. And Ben, on that point, with the skepticism around the polls, I very much agree that because Trump is such an unusual candidate, you can see a little bit more noise in the polling data than you otherwise would. But I do think it's very, very important to keep that as a matter of scale. It's not a blank slate that everyone who says they're uncertain or voting for Biden might not be truthful. Even back in 2016, that really only got Trump, call it three, four percentage points. Right now, it looks like the gap between the two is 10. That doesn't mean that 10 sustains all the way until November. But I do think that it's an important nuance to keep in mind that even with skewed polling, right now the gap looks very difficult to close. Of course, we still haven't seen Biden's VP choice. We haven't gotten through the debates. And there's always the opportunity of some huge October surprise. It is 2020 after all. Isn't 2020 over yet? The phrase hindsight is 2020 has taken on a whole new meaning. Might be rebranded as blindside is 2020. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will receive a couple key inputs, primarily in the form of the inflation report, core CPI. We do see PPI, but that is obviously secondary to the impact on consumer prices. And then we also get retail sales for July. Current expectations are for a modest increase of 1.8%, although in the context of the increase in COVID-19 cases experienced in July, I think that this data will be very closely scrutinized for any signs of additional fallout from the pandemic. As that translates through to the Treasury market, at this stage, it's not entirely obvious that consumption data is going to be responsible for any material repricing in the outright level of Treasury rates. With 10-year yields hovering between 50 and 60 basis points, to really break out, we would need to see another hit to the labor market, which in the wake of the non-farm payrolls data from July seems to have been delayed, if not avoided. Obviously, this puts a great deal of emphasis on the August non-farm payrolls release, but that's still several weeks out. 
We do get the August refunding with 38 billion in 10 years and 26 billion in 30 years. It's difficult to imagine that that won't warrant at least some modest in-range concession. We wouldn't expect anything more than five or six basis points on net, particularly if we're coming off the low marks as the week gets underway. Keep in mind that Monday and Tuesday will most likely be a sideways grind in the rates market given the limited new information, with the only supply event being the three-year auction on Tuesday afternoon. The backdrop of waiting for another round of fiscal stimulus from Washington continues, with the flip side being the increase in trade war tensions that has once again become topical as the White House focuses on Chinese technology companies and Canadian imports. While this by no means translates through to an exciting trading environment for the Treasury market, we will give a nod to the constructive seasonal patterns that tend to favor lower rates between now and the middle of September. And with that 50 basis point level in 10 years looming, our typical stance of coming out of the auction process long duration holds in the current environment. After all, auctions bring out buyers. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the dog days of summer descend, we'll be eager to see how the back-to-home-school shopping season plays out. What's old is new. Wait, does that mean I'm new? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.
BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.